please stand for the benediction. <laughs> we'll need a sermon after that. Well done, Tommy, Lorraine, and choir. Beautiful, beautiful. The mountains are calling, and I must go. Nod if you've ever heard that phrase before. In recent years, it's become something of a rallying cry for those who long for the great outdoors. And of course, that makes sense because the name that that quote is attributed to is none other than John Muir. Muir, also known as the father of the national parks, was passionate about inspiring people to get outside. Muir valued nature for its spiritual and transcendental qualities. In an essay that he wrote about the national parks, he referred to them as places for rest, inspiration, and prayers. Later, author Dennis Williams, writing about Muir's desire to immerse people in nature, wrote that Muir styled himself as a John the Baptist whose duty was to immerse in mountain baptism everyone that he could. For me, the mountains came calling in September of 2021. This was after a particularly long season of ministry during the global pandemic. You don't need me to tell you how hard that was. Like many of you, I was shaken to the core, not just by bodily sickness, but by soul sickness. I grieved the world as it was and longed for a world that for all intents and purposes no longer existed. I wondered where God was in all of this. I wondered, would we recover? Would we find our way again? And so when I was invited by a mentor and a dear friend of mine to join him and three other ministers in Rocky Mountain National Park for a week, I didn't hesitate. I'd never visited Colorado before. I'd only seen pictures online from them, friends who had visited before. And so when we arrived at Estes Park, it was grander than I'd even imagined. The sight of towering peaks, the taste of mile-high air, and the sight of wildlife roaming the streets of Estes Park greeted us as we settled in that first night. I was ecstatic to be there, eager to jump on those trails the following morning. I was ready for my mountain baptism. And boy, did I get it. The next morning, we hit our first trail at Rocky Mountain National Park. And for those of you who haven't visited the park, it is truly breathtaking. And I mean that both literally and metaphorically. The utter beauty of the park is, of course, overwhelming, but so was the lack of oxygen. And being a Floridian who jumps on a trail without first acclimating is not exactly the smartest idea. The rest of the trip was filled with similar moderate hikes. They weren't easy, but also weren't too taxing. But the final hike, the final hike made me question my life choices. The last hike was called the CCY route. CCY stands for Mount Chapin, Mount Chiquita, and Mount Gibson. All three peaks well over 12,000 feet with Mount Chiquita and Mount Gibson eclipsing 13,000. The elevation gain on the trail was 3,244 feet over nine miles out and back. Again, questioning my life choices. 
hike was actually harder than I'd imagined it would be. But it was also the most memorable of the trip. Standing on those peaks was quite literally a spiritual experience for me personally. I had never felt so small in my life, and yet I hadn't felt that close to God in some time. It was a surreal experience, the kind that you never want to end. But it did end. And to tell you the truth, I didn't really want to come home. I missed my family and you all, of course, but I wasn't ready to return to the grind of everyday life. I felt alive, refreshed, rejuvenated in those mountains. And I wasn't ready to come down from my mountain baptism to a world of hurt, confusion, and desperation. I longed to remain in my mountain sanctuary, sheltered from the weight of responsibility and comforted by God's presence in the natural world. In other words, I think I finally understood what Peter felt on that mountain with Jesus and two of his closest friends. On Transfiguration Sunday, we recall the remarkable moment where indeed Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on what Matthew describes as a high mountain. And on top of that mountain, something strange happens. Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. Or in the words of this year's Super Bowl halftime performer Rihanna, Jesus shines bright like a diamond. The youth get that one. But then Moses and Elijah show up, and they strike up a conversation with Jesus. We have no idea what they're discussing, but Matthew tells us that they were talking about something. And the text also doesn't describe the disciples' reaction to all of this, but my gut tells me that they were simultaneously amazed and terrified. After all, it's not every day that you witness your mentor transform into bright light and have two of Israel's dead pillars come and strike up a chat. But Peter, in all of his unbridled confidence, recognizes the enormity of the moment. He tells Jesus that it's good for them to be here, and he offers up to build tents or dwelling places for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Now this probably seems like a peculiar request to us, but for Peter, it's a sign of respect and hospitality. Peter wants to cradle this moment. In humility, Peter realizes how blessed he is to share in this experience. And like so many of us who've experienced that mountaintop revival, it's human nature to try and hold on to that, to bottle it up for as long as possible. And yet while Peter is still speaking, a bright cloud overshadows them, and a voice speaks out, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It harkens us back to Jesus' baptism, where a similar voice comes out of the clouds and says the same phrase. Only this time there's the refrain at the end, Listen we're not given the details on what the disciples should listen to exactly, but I think the point is deeper than that. Like the disciples, we have this tendency to be in God's presence and yet miss the point of what is happening right in front of us. Perhaps we're too busy with our own agenda to notice what God is doing, 
Or maybe like Peter, we're well-intentioned, but our actions and our words distract us from comprehending what it is that God is really up to. There's a reason Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on that mountain with him. Because on that mountain, these three disciples are given a gift and a vision. Not just of who Jesus is, but what Jesus will accomplish. With Moses and Elijah accompanying him on the mountain, Jesus is commissioned as the one who will fulfill both the law and the prophets. Jesus is the one, the Messiah, as, right, as Peter rightly proclaims in the preceding chapter, who will set the world to rights and fulfill God's promise of restoration for the whole world. And if Jesus is in fact the one that Peter says that he is, the one that Moses and Elijah gathered with on that mountain, then there is nothing more important that we can offer him than our undivided attention. It's fascinating to me how churches are like disciples. Now that's not surprising since we are communities made up of flawed and finite human beings, but by now, with scripture and church history, you would have thought that we would learn something. When God is moving and doing something in our midst, I'm struck by either how we are so slow to join the work that God is doing, or we miss it entirely. For instance, Peter rightly proclaims Jesus as the Messiah in chapter 16, but then when Jesus turns around and tells the disciples that he's going to die, Peter rebukes him. Because that doesn't align with Peter's idea of what a Messiah should be. Of course, Jesus puts him in his place and reminds him of who's calling the shots here. But isn't it still like us humans to want to corral God into our retrofitted boxes? To take the God of salvation, the God of liberation, the God of justice, and make him nice and tightly fit into those boxes so that it fits with our agenda and our vision. And yet throughout the course of human history, God makes it clear that we are both partners with and vessels of God's grand experiment in the world. We are not in the captain's seat, my friends. And of course we should celebrate that fact, but that doesn't stop us from trying time and time again trying to get over and grab the driver's wheel. Perhaps it's stupidity, maybe it's stubbornness, maybe it's both, but whether we like to admit it or not, most of the time we feel on some level that we can execute the work of God's kingdom without its primary architect. Listen to him. Listen to him wasn't just for Peter, James, and John that Listen to him is for those of us who sit here this morning at 4001 Hendricks Avenue. It's for those who have gathered with us online this morning. It's for every believer all over the world. Because if we are going to be about what God is doing in the world, we first have to follow and listen to the one that God sent to show us the way. After hearing the voice from the heavens, the disciples fall to the ground in fear, only to be reassured by Jesus who comes and touches them and says, Get up and do not be afraid. I admit that the first time I read this passage, I didn't think much about Jesus' comment here. But upon a second or third reading, 
came to me that perhaps there's more going on here than this statement. Certainly it was comforting to the disciples to hear these words, but after Jesus reassures them, they head back down the mountain to a broken and needy world. For the disciples, the Joel, for what they had just experienced back into daily life would have surely left them joyful, but also jostled. I mean, how do you reconcile what you just witnessed on the mountain with everyday existence? Perhaps the phrase, get up and do not be afraid, was the, was the words that the voice from the heavens wanted them to listen to on that mountain. Get up and go back to a broken world. But as you go, do not be afraid. In January, we hosted our second book discussion of our new series, Come, Let Us Reason. In fact, shameless plug, you should join us on March the 19th for our third. And if you're not there, I'm going to be disappointed because you got a month. During our discussion of Will Willman's book, Listeners Dare, I was struck by what he said regarding the church and transfiguration. Willman writes, take the transfiguration as a parable about what it means to be church. As challenging as preaching can be, he says, you listeners have your hands full. Daring a transfiguring Jesus to give you an earful. And what does God expect? Listen. Listen. And after a daunting listening, dare to go back down the mountain and tell what we've heard. What we learn on Transfiguration Sunday is that what happens on the mountain doesn't stay on the mountain. The mountain is a calling, but so is the valley. And God is just as present in the valley as God is up on that mountaintop. In the valley, in the neighborhood, God is out ahead of us working and laying the groundwork for us to come. In Jesus' name, to bear witness to the one who commands us to get up and do not be afraid. Sharon Rind reminds us the glory of God's presence and the pain of a broken world cannot be separated. A church that has forgotten this truth is a church that has forgotten its mission. And when a church forgets its mission, it forfeits its witness to a world that is longing for the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Near the end of chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For what will it profit someone to gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? This Wednesday is February 22nd. It's also Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of Lent, a period of 40 days leading up to Easter. It's a season of self-examination, a season of confession, a season of devotion self-denial. And at the end of those 40 days, with God's help, we put to death our sinful appetites, our selfish behaviors, our fickle commitments. And out of that death, new life begins to spring forth by God's grace. 
And we live and we walk in the hope of the resurrection, knowing that Jesus Christ is the culmination of God's law, God's prophecy, and God's reconciling love. I wonder this year, as a church, if we might commit to the idea of sacrificing this idea, that worship is primarily about what we do in this place. Is it important? Yes. Is it meaningful? Absolutely. Is it necessary? No doubt. But if the joy and the love that we experience in this place never makes it outside these walls, then we have failed to listen to the one who speaks to us from the heavens and says, this is my son, the beloved, with him I am well pleased. Friends, the mountains may be calling, but so is the valley. Maybe it's time for us to get up and go. Because that's where Jesus is. And if we go with